are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Hi, I am Toby Lawson and welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast, where we discuss the growth and prosperity of nations by talking to leading researchers and social scientists. My guest on today's episode is David Rudman. David is a freelance researcher and public policy consultant. He is also the current senior advisor for Open Philanthropy, the leading non-profit organization in the world on how to do charities effectively. My introduction to David was through his second book titled Due Diligence, An Impertinent Inquiry into Microfinance, which in my opinion is no doubt the best literature available on the subject despite a decade of publication. I began my conversation by asking David how insiders reacted to some of his findings that microcredits, that is giving small amount of loans to poor people, might not be the magic bullet to poverty alleviation as many people are taught. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And thank you always for listening. Ideas on Trap is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace that gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. So welcome, David. It's great to talk to you. It's Uh, great to be here. I'm a big fan of you, and this is as close as I'll get to a celebrity <laughs> in my world. <laughs> so let's start with microcredit. Your book, like we talked about earlier, came out 10 years ago. What has the atmosphere been since then? Would you say that the evidence has caught up with the narrative, or you're still seeing signs of some of the old narratives existing? Yeah, I, I should say that's a hard question for me to answer because after I finished the book, I stopped following microfinance. So I'm not so up on what is happening. That said, even if I were still following microfinance, probably my view would be shaped by living here in Washington, D.C. and talking to people here, which could be very different from what's happening in Nigeria or anywhere else. I know that there's still a lot of microfinance and more specifically microcredit happening. I know that the idea that it is a silver bullet, you know, for ending poverty, a cure for poverty is very appealing and was widespread 10 years ago and probably is still popular now because it's a great way to recruit people into the project, whether it's as investors or employees or customers. The latest I think I came across was a sort of meta-analysis by Rachel Miga, the economist which pretty much, I would say, I know you've not been following, agrees with some of the key findings that you described in your book. The effects are still pretty much not as definitive as the advocates 
of microfinance or microcredit are selling it. The atmosphere may be different where you are, but it's still a very popular idea, at least here in Nigeria and parts of Africa that I'm aware of. And it's still pretty much being sold as the silver bullet, <laughs> like you said, the, this thing that brings people out of poverty. For example, the government of Nigeria came up with this elaborate scheme to bring 100 million people out of poverty. And part of the center of that plan is to give people microcredits small loans to traders. They call it trader money here. It was quite popular during the last election. Lots of people thought that was just campaign financing masquerading as anti-poverty scheme. But I want to ask you, what is wrong with that view that microcredit is this thing that you just do and a lot of poor people in poor places just get out of poverty? Give us a brief survey of the evidence. What is wrong with that view? Right. Uh, starting in 2009, we started seeing the first randomized studies of the impact of microcredit. They're run much the same way that they're testing vaccines. You know, you randomly give the treatment, in this case, a loan or the offer of a loan to some people and then not others. And then you visit them every few months over a year or so, and you ask them a lot of questions and you see how they're doing. And then you make a comparison. And the randomized studies mostly found no clear impact on poverty by meaning, you know, how much a household is spending each month or earning each month. And that certainly goes against the stories that were being told about microcredit for decades before then, you know, as being a cure for poverty. So Rachel Meager did, I think, a sort of synthesis of those studies and sort of confirmed that basic finding. What I want to do is give intuition for both why credit can be useful and yet why we shouldn't be surprised by that finding. Everybody uses credit pretty much. And, and somebody who is unable to access credit is probably very poor. So being able to borrow money when you're in a tough place, like, you know, your wife is sick and you need to get a doctor, is really very important. And microcredit can be just one more way for poor people to get access to loans when they're in a pinch. Certainly credit has been useful in my life for helping me buy a house, for example. So I don't think we should just assume that credit is always bad and dangerous and not useful for poor people. At the same time, we should recognize that the major way that poverty has been reduced on this planet is not through tiny loans to poor people, but through larger scale processes of industrialization, creating factories and offices that employ people, educating people, all these very large scale things that create both losers and winners, but are the real route out of poverty. And so it's just not plausible that giving loans to poor people is going to lift them out of poverty any more than giving food to poor people would be expected to lift them out of poverty. The one danger with credit does distinguish it from, say, giving people cash or giving them food or are building schools for them is that you can really get in trouble with credit. And so what's dangerous and somewhat specific to credit is that if it is promoted too enthusiastically, it can actually do more harm than good. We've seen credit bubbles in this country, and I'm sure you've seen them in Nigeria. So that's what I really worry about is the over-enthusiasm causing it to do less good than it would otherwise if it were done more carefully. Yeah. On that last point, surely there have been stories in the papers and through other media here in Nigeria of traders complaining about trouble with some of these loans, some with multiple 
credit vendors, some multiple loans from the same vendors, yeah. and repayment becomes impossible over time. And some of the tactics that the credit companies or the microfinance banks use to recover those loans have certainly been questionable and have raised a lot of highbrows. And something you also delved into in your book, which my experience confirms, is that most households use these loans, most poor households, I should say, use these loans to smoothen consumption, like you said, to pay the school fees of their kids, to buy food, to meet other expenses, and not really to invest in their businesses. You know, because those businesses are so small and you you don't see much skill coming from some of those. So now, given those intuitions, right, what would you say is the, should I say, bias or cognitive dissonance or just maybe plain confusion of the advocates of microcredit in not seeing these problems or admitting them? That's a great question. Um, I think the drive comes from a few places. Some people are in it just to profit. I'm sure that some people in Nigeria who are leading microfinance institutions are just you know, trying to make money, and that's all it is. There are lots of other people who want to help find a way to help to make the world a better place. So if I'm sitting in Washington and I want to help people in Nigeria, how do I do that? Well, it's very appealing if I can make loans, say online, to people in Nigeria, use my wealth to help them. And I want to believe that that's a useful thing. It's very appealing. So it comes partly out of good intentions. Another thing that shapes the drive is that it's convenient for a lot of people. It doesn't question existing power structures or the distribution of wealth. It's in that way, a very conservative, the word translates into the Nigerian context, but kind of in American, we would call it a conservative idea. Uh, it looks to the market system as a way to help everybody do better without questioning the existing distribution of power and wealth. The other thing that happens is that the economics of microcredit give it more drive. If you want to make money or at least cover your costs so you're sustainable while making $100 or $500 loans from the U.S. perspective, quite small, you have to do that at very low cost. Because otherwise you can spend $100 making a $100 loan and then you have to charge an absurd interest in order to cover your costs. So microcredit, when it's done at scale, is all about minimizing costs and making everything into a routine. So that's why when there's group credit, there's a weekly meeting of people who are all borrowing together and they all take loans of the same size and they all make the same payments the same week. And so you can service 40 loans within less than an hour. It also means there's a really strong emphasis on keeping the repayment rate high. So you often see higher repayment rates in microcredit than you do among more affluent people, lower default rates. And that's because there's peer pressure to pay back and all sorts of other pressure, as you've hinted, to keep things moving on an even keel. If the system just starts to go off the track slightly, it can very quickly explode financially. So the micro lenders really have to keep things on a straight and narrow. Like I said, the idea is still pretty popular in a lot of places. So from your experience, when you started working on this and some of the skeptical findings and results started coming in, what was the atmosphere like when you were communicating this to people who are 
I don't know, maybe advocates or enthusiasts of the idea. Was it hostile or did they respond to the evidence as you had hoped? <laughs> and this is relevant because of also communicating these ideas in places where microcredit is still being sold as this silver bullet for the cure of poverty. So for some of us who would like to maybe follow the same path and you know tell people, oh well, this thing it's a bit more nuanced than it's been sold. What should we expect? What did you experience? <laughs> hmm. Well, I think my style is fairly mm, gentle most of the time. Uh, as I write towards the end of my book, I'm a child of divorce. You know, my parents were fighting a lot in my teenage years. And I think that shapes me in a couple of ways. One is I have a very strong drive to want to look at something from lots of different angles in the belief that different opposing views both have something to teach me. And I think that comes across when I write about these things is, you know, I'm going to be frank about what the evidence says, but I'm also going to work very hard to hear out people for whom the evidence is inconvenient and uncomfortable because maybe they have something to teach me too. And then, then I look for a synthesis. You know, what's the overall view after you looked at it from different angles? So I personally did not experience a lot of hostility or friction from the strongest advocates of microfinance in Washington, D.C. That doesn't mean they didn't voice disagreement. They did. They did it fairly politely. I did experience uh, more hostility from people who were even more critical of microcredit than I was. Milford Bateman and Hugh Sinclair, I think, were the main two prominent critics. And most of their anger was channeled at microfinance institutions, including Hugh Sinclair wrote a lot about LAPO. I don't know if it's still around. That was a microcredit yeah, institution it, in yeah. Nigeria. Yeah, and so they were not angry with me, but I took issue with their one-sidedness. <laughs> And so we got in, there was some friction there, although I had a lot of good conversations with Hugh. But how much friction I generated is distinct from how much change you know, I caused. I don't know that I caused the major microfinance institutions in Washington, D.C., and there, there are a bunch in D.C. that have global reach to greatly change what they do on the ground, although I think I did affect how they talk about it, at least when they're in the West. Mm. What did that sort of experience teach you about the interplay between research and policy. I'm sure you interacted with policymakers. You also interacted with lots of leading people at think tanks and people who make decisions about some of these things. So what did that experience teach you? Are there also people who respond to evidence or as it is with humans generally, other forces and incentives at play? That's a great question. Uh, certainly my case was not one where new evidence arose and suddenly everybody changed what they did. And partly that's, I should say, that's how it should be because, you know, when you're studying a vaccine, you can get some pretty clear answers pretty quickly. You know, you and I are very similar biologically, right? So if the vaccine works for you, it probably works for me. It's less clear when you go to microcredit, right? It didn't do so well in Mexico. Does, what does that say about Nigeria? A little less clear. Although humans are still humans everywhere, as you say. So I don't think there was anybody I can think of in the policymaking role who lived up to the evidence-based policy ideal, suddenly changing what they do in response to new evidence. I do feel like there was a more social dynamic in which lots of people were talking to each other, mostly online, researchers, people running microfinance institutions, people in government, lots of different folks. And 
in a kind of way that's kind of hard to pin down, the ways that people talk about microfinance tend to change over time, at least in the community that I was in, the people I was hearing from. And there was a gradual de-emphasis of the idea that it reduced poverty. And I think there are organizations that are funding it less as a result of the evidence than they would have otherwise. Like can't be definitive, but USAID is a little long supporter of finance for poor people. I think that they have de-emphasized microfinance somewhat. And the organizations I work for now, Open Philanthropy and its sister organization, GiveWell, long ago chose not to go into financing microfinance because the evidence was too weak. You sort of preempted where I was going next with the Open Philanthropy reference. So I think a lot of the attention regarding, uh, should I say money, as an intervention for poverty, has sort of shifted to cash transfers. Mm-hmm. So the New York Times reporter, I think she's with the Atlanta now, Annie Laurie wrote a book, Just Give People Money. Yep. Cash transfer is really popular. We have organizations like Give Directly who are getting a lot of funding and backing. Yep. There's a lot of enthusiasm. So and I'm wondering, are you, I know you follow some of these things, are you getting a bit of the same feeling with microcredit? <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, there's been so many other studies that are skeptical of cash transfers as the thing that makes the difference between households okay. as far as poverty goes. But it may not well be the same story as microcredit. So what, what are your thoughts? Okay. I have not been following it closely. So I work for Open Philanthropy, which is based in the San Francisco area and is essentially a foundation with most of its money coming from one of the founders of Facebook, Dustin Moskowitz, and his wife, Carrie Tuna. We, in turn, have been making major grants to the organization that we spun off from, which is GiveWell, which focuses on recommending charities to anybody. You can go to their website and get advice about where to give money at least if you're in the States or in some other countries where you can get the tax deduction. But I, I should say the tax deduction by donating to U.S. groups. One of the major recipients of that money is Give Directly. So I work for an organization that is funding Give Directly, and that's the leading organization that has been giving money directly to poor people in the world. I haven't been involved in that decision-making and haven't been following the research closely. I think it's actually a positive example of concern about evidence shaping where the money actually goes. The founder was committed to doing lots and lots of research alongside their actual programming work. So every time they, they move into an area, they try to find a research project to look at different angles of how they're giving the money, who to give it to, under what conditions, and so on. My casual impression is that there has not been hype about it. I have not seen people claiming that this is the path out of poverty. It's actually, um, I want to say cynical, which isn't quite the right word. It's saying you know, there all sorts of things have been tried over the years to help poor people. And we're not sure about whether many of them have really worked. It's not clear that they have. So why don't we just give up on all that and just give them the money? So it's not a claim to be perfect. It's a claim to be better than nothing, <laughs> better, better than a lot of things that seem to have failed. So it's sort of a, an intrinsically humble story that I get from the promoters of cash transfers. Mm -hmm. So I find it very encouraging both because it doesn't seem overhyped. Well, there's three reasons. It doesn't seem overhyped to me, although you may be seeing hype about it that I haven't seen, it is being accompanied by a lot of rigorous research. And it's not intrinsically dangerous the way credit is. It looks promising to me. Mm -hmm.
naturally this will lead me into this debate about development interventions generally something that land preached who i'm sure you're very familiar with as called getting kinky about development you know so he got into this big debate with chris blackman in vox on chickens you know when Bill Gates was considering whether chickens are the new thing to give to poor people and uh, help them. So now, what's your view on development interventions generally that is propping this so-called randomistic revolution in development economics, as opposed to what people like Lant or even to an extent Bill Easterly would say that what still really makes a difference is national development, economic growth, you know. So have you been following this debate and where do you stand? Because, again, I should say, as someone who lives in a poor country, these are not just academic debates. These are things that actually influence policymakers one way or the other. You have so many countries in Africa that do not bother with things like even basic infrastructure anymore, you know, and they just give people cash. They Mm -hmm. just, they do school meals, you know, even if the classrooms are leaking. So, I mean, where do you stand on this debate? Is the randomistic movement good for development? I know it's a good versus bad thing, you know, but you get what I mean. (laughs) Right. So this is a big, complicated topic, and I haven't thought about it in a while, but I think that the randomista movement and the notion that we should be rigorously testing the things we're doing to try to help is fundamentally healthy, that we're affecting people's lives, the lives of millions of vulnerable people with these aid interventions. And why shouldn't we, when possible, be holding them to the same standards that we hold vaccines and medicines to? The mistakes are at least as high. One downside of the focus with the sort of the celebrity and the excitement about randomized studies is that it has tended to focus everybody's mind on micro interventions, kind of as you suggested, giving meals or cash instead of building roads and schools and better government and all the things that are needed for real development. I think there's no question, as I already said, that the major thing that has reduced poverty in the world is stuff that has happened at the national level, you know, like in China and even now in India and lots of other countries involves different mixtures of education and infrastructure and setting up markets for capital and so on, lots of things, encouraging exports, creating some kind of rule of law. Uh, The question is, what can I do to help? What can you do to help? I don't really know how to help Nigeria create better conditions for national development. Now, maybe Lant would say, well, actually, we do know how to do that. But it's not straightforward. It could be that the main way that the West helps countries like Nigeria and India and China eventually improve things is just by our accidental examples. <laughs> we happen to have gotten it right by historical chance and cultivating global communities of research and conversation so that the ideas in the air when somebody in Nigeria is looking for how to do things are good ideas based on evidence and experience. Now, Maybe from your point of view, you can see things that the United States really can do to make a difference in Nigeria at the national level. But for me, it's very hard to tell. And that's why I can see the appeal of going as an outsider, focusing on micro-interventions. I would say in favor of the micro-intervention approach that there have been some extraordinary successes, more or less getting rid of measles. We're almost there on polio, vaccinating millions or billions of children. 
None of those necessarily changed the course of national development, but they did a lot of good and suffice on their own to justify all aid spending that has ever occurred. So there is something to be said for the micro approach, not because it's the solution, but it's the best that outsiders can do. And sometimes it's pretty good. Also, earlier in your career, you were involved in research on aid and the relationship between foreign aid and economic growth, along with Bill Eastley, who is a fierce critic of aid and so many other things that was passing for development interventions at the time. What was that experience like? How did aid as the, I want to say sexy thing, how did it run out of steam? I mean, I'm sure you contributed to that in your own way. Uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, it has not run out of steam. I think aid giving is still at near record levels. Maybe it's gone down a bit because there have been some cutbacks in the UK. When I was in my early 30s, I started working as a kind of a junior person at a new think tank in Washington called the Center for Global Development that looked at how the policies of wealthy countries affect poorer countries, and not just foreign aid, but our trade policies and our immigration policies and our environmental policies. And so one of my first tasks was to assist Bill Easterly, who had also just arrived, in revisiting a new, at the time new, which was 20 years ago, uh, and very sexy study that found statistically that foreign aid increased economic growth in the receiving country when those countries had good economic policies, which meant things like having low inflation and trade openness. And this is a quantitative result, you know, gathering data on a bunch of countries, how much aid they got, how fast they grew and running the numbers. And when I had first learned about this study in the late 90s, I was very impressed by it. It's like statistics was this kind of X-ray vision. You could look through the noise and find the patterns. But Bill was skeptical of the study. And so what he told me to do was to try to gather the same data that had been used in that study, uh, which had been authored by former colleagues of his at the World Bank, and then try to replicate what they had done. And then because time had passed, he told me to add another four years of data to see if the patterns continue. And what I found, just as he had suspected, is that when we added a bit of data, the results just completely went away. In fact, if anything, there was now a negative relationship, although it was not statistically significant. So this is a real powerful lesson for me and how you can impress and sometimes fool people and even fool yourself with statistics. And you can get published in top journals and you can get a lot of attention from policymakers, especially when your message is compatible, <laughs> makes them feel useful. It's because it was a very compelling study because it not only said that aid does work, but it gave a recipe for how to make it work, which countries to give it to, the ones with low inflation, trade openness, et cetera. I then went on, having experienced this powerful lesson, to do the same thing with six or seven other studies in the literature at the time. You know, I re-ran them and then I copied their choices. Like this one used four-year periods, this one used six-year periods, this one defined growth this way, one this one defined growth that way. I copied their choices among them and I found again that most of their findings of aid working were fragile. So that did not mean that aid did harm or that aid had no effect. It just meant, at the least, that the effect wasn't strong enough to show up reliably in the statistics that we have, which I found intuitive because, you know, if you imagine what happened, what, is, what has influenced the course of Nigeria over the last 30 or 40 years? All sorts of things, uh, relationships between different ethnic groups, the price of oil, random political events. The amount of foreign aid that Nigeria has received is probably a small determinant of what has happened. And so it should, be, should not be surprising that it's hard to detect its effect. So. 
I certainly came away with a feeling that we should not expect aid to be some kind of savior to lift whole nations out of poverty. But I didn't conclude as a result necessarily that it was doing harm because it was a mirror, right? All I was finding is that you couldn't really tell what was going on. There are lots of stories to make us think that aid often does harm. No question that it can disrupt the political dynamics in the receiving country, especially if it's a small country receiving a lot of aid, because then it can really bolster the central government and reduce its accountability to the people. All sorts of well-intended projects can go awry because of arrogance or lack of haste or a lack of respect for the uh, views of local people. But I've already given some examples where aid has done a lot of good. So I don't think we can paint this all with one brushstroke. One reason that I think Chris Blattman in his defense cited in responding to Lance's critique, and I'm tying this to your experience with the aid research, is that a lot of these aids and interventions are going to happen anyways. Mm. Like researchers are not in charge of aid policy or intervention policy. It's political, right? So it's better to get good evidence on how to use these interventions, where it works. So would you agree with that? Should I say it's not the best, right? But it's the best we've got. So would you agree with that view? I'm not sure what the it is. Doing doing randomized trials of micro-interventions? Is that the Yes, it? yes. Uh, I mean, certainly there is some sense in that. A couple of caveats. One is, you know, I think Lance's view does have certain implications, like about the value of giving promising young officials in government fellowships to come study in other countries and just time to, to pick up ideas from elsewhere. That may be one of the most powerful ways that we can ultimately affect what governments in developing countries do and contribute to national level development. That's sort of an aside, but there's plenty of room in, in modern aid budgets to do both micro-interventions and that kind of exchange program. Sure. I mean, I think we should try to, to evaluate what we're doing. My former colleague at the Center for Global Development, Justin Sandifer, some years ago contributed to a paper in which researchers in Kenya took an intervention that had been determined to work in randomized studies. I think it had to do with adding um, tutors in the classroom and schools. And then watched what happened when the government scaled up that then intervention and when a nonprofit, non-governmental organization scaled up the intervention. And by scaling up, I mean doing not just in one school, but in a thousand. And the impacts were different. I think the ones run by the nonprofit worked better. One important message out of that paper is that when we talk about an intervention, that's an abstraction. Every time you open a clinic or a school, it's different. And it can be run well or it can be run badly. And that means when you do a randomized trial of one particular example, it doesn't necessarily generalize to what's going to happen when a successful intervention is scaled up. So it's a major caveat to the idea that we can first figure out what works and then do it. It's just the world is not that simple. More and more, I think I'm drawn to public health interventions, because when you get those right, when you vaccinate kids or otherwise eliminate diseases, the payoff is so huge and lives saved, lives improved for the amount of money that you spend, that even if there's a lot of waste, you know, even if the programs are not run as well in the field as they are in the experiments when we're evaluating them, it's still probably going to do more good than, you know, justify its cost very easily. Lastly, on that, Sergey, before I pull you in other directions, sometimes I look at the incentives and sometimes the ethics 
of some of these research. Incentive in the sense that you see situations where institutions, uh, maybe the World Bank, I'm not making any accusations just for the record, recommend things that they can easily study, you know, things mm-hmm. that provide easy data and setting for randomized studies and fields. And isn't that a bad incentive in terms of how to know what works? Mm-hmm. There certainly is a risk in that, right? Because it may bias us towards small interventions and we may ignore what actually could help the most, even though it's harder to evaluate. But it's another thing where there's no simple generalization here, okay? There's a case to be made that, you know, there's just large areas where foreign aid shouldn't be involved because we just don't know which way is up. Why don't we focus the limited aid budgets on what we know works? It's kind of like, you know, if you're navigating to visit a friend, you uh, could find the optimal route. (laughs) And of course, now we've got computers to do it for us. But you also could just find the route that you know works. And it's not quite optimal, but it's reliable. Most interventions probably don't work. That's my view, that it's just much harder for outsiders to help than it might seem. So if your naive expectation of an intervention is that it has zero or negative impact, then it's reasonable to say, let's only do the things where we have much stronger reason to believe there's positive impact. That may be how you do the most good. It really comes down to what your prior is about unevaluated interventions. From the point of view of an outsider to a developing country, my prior is zero or possibly negative. So I'm pretty comfortable staying with things that have been evaluated. So, I mean, on the ethics question, there was this controversial study in Kenya where the intervention was designed to cut power to some households versus others. Uh, I'm not sure if you were aware (laughs) of that. Yeah. So, I mean, it became really controversial. So, I guess my question would be, should some things be off limits, even if we are trying to know what works? Or that is an excessively moralistic way to look at doing uh, development research? Um, No, I think there should be things that are off limits. That's how it is in medicine for example, which has a long history of running randomized trials. There are all sorts of rules about getting consent and offering, depending on the context, offering some kinds of treatment, even to the control group for ethical reasons. It does unfortunately limit sometimes what we can learn, but I think it's appropriate. There just have to be moral limits on research, just like any other activity. Let's move to a somewhat related subject, but in a different setting. Now, so when when Trump got elected, a lot of people got this awakening in the U.S. that possibly maybe the focus on international development has certainly encouraged policymakers to turn some kind of blind eye to the poverty in the United States itself. And that has pulled different political movements in multiple directions and policies. So one policy that has been, it's not new, but sadly gaining traction is universal basic income. Is it something that could work? Is it something that should be even attempted? 
lots of economists are talking about its impact on employment and so many other things. And I think the pandemic and the assistance that a lot of households got provided some kind of natural experiment for testing that. And we are seeing lots of debates around the labor market in the U.S. So what are your thoughts on UBI? Yeah, I haven't thought about it deeply, but I'm broadly in favor. I think, you know, this country, compared to a lot of other Western wealthy countries, has a pretty uh, tattered safety net. And the people who fall through that most tend to be people of color. But maybe that's, in a sense, that's secondary, just if you're somebody who falls through, whether white or, or brown or black, you're someone who's vulnerable and suffering. And that's what matters. And the amount of money that it would take to provide, you know, $1,000 a month to millions of households in order to close a lot of these holes in the safety net is very much affordable within the scale of the U.S. economy. And it's less patronizing than, you know, trying to micromanage how people use the money for restricting it to food and so on. I'm pessimistic in the way that a lot of Americans are now pessimistic about this country (laughs) because of the Trump experience. I mean, the hope for UBI would be that it would give everybody a sense of belonging to a unified nation state. Everybody would feel like they have a stake in the system. Right now, what really is, from my point of view, corroding this country, and this goes back to Ronald Reagan, is a hatred of government. Of course, government can do bad things and overreach and all that and be an instrument of the already powerful. But hatred of government, distrust of government has gotten to the point where our government is paralyzed. And so the hope is that, you know, UBI could change that. And I'm I'm not super optimistic about that. I mean, already we have Social Security, so we have essentially universal basic income for anybody above 65, which is a large fraction of the population. And that has not unified our country. It's also possible that for the same reason, UBI will only be politically viable for the foreseeable future if it's cast as something that's for children, which can get us pretty far, but not every struggling household has children. And so that could be one limit that we run into. But I'm in favor of pushing in that direction. And I think if it's at the level I suggested, like $1,000 a month, I mean, I don't know the specifics of the proposals, that may be too low, but if it's in that kind of neighborhood, in the United States, I doubt that that would discourage many people from working. It's not enough for a comfortable life, but it can save you from starvation. What are you working on right now and what do you find interesting about it? What attracted you to it? Um, I'm transitioning from one project to another and they are very different. One is part of my organization's ongoing effort to think about whether and when human level artificial intelligence might be developed. The idea being that if we have machines that can outsmart us, that that would be one of the most, if not the most important event in history ever. And if there's anything we can do as a foundation to make artificial intelligence safer, that could be one of the most valuable things we can do. So it gets complicated, but I've been thinking a lot about how you define what is human level performance, like say being a lawyer or being a politician, and how long it would take and how much computation would it take to train uh, an artificial intelligence to perform as well. It gets into lots of questions like how big a computer do you need for it to be as powerful as a brain and how long would it take to train it and so on. So we can talk more about that. But I'm going to move to something very different, which is looking at the evidence on certain malnutrition interventions. 
In the last 20, 30 years, there have been developed um, ready-to-use foods for severely malnourished children, so children who are on the brink of death, seemingly. And protocols have been developed so that workers can go into, say, a village or a neighborhood and kind of triage the children, decide which ones need to be fed daily at a clinic or some other site versus which ones can just go home with their parents and certain a box of the food product and which ones might even need hospitalization. As a charity recommender, GiveWell is thinking about whether to recommend organizations that are engaged in these interventions around the world trying to feed poor children. You asked me earlier about the ethics of randomized trials. One of the problems we face here is that there are no randomized trials of this particular approach to helping starving children compared to doing nothing at all, because it would be unethical to go into a village and only feed half the kids. Sure. So we don't actually have randomized evidence that this approach works. So then the question is, how sure can we be that this is a good thing to spend money on? Because just like with any other intervention, things that sound good on the surface are actually complicated and things can go wrong. What if the food is stolen? Or maybe what if the food actually ends up being consumed by other family members, not the child you're trying to save? I'm just making things up. I don't know how likely that is. And I'm not knowledgeable on this topic yet. But I can imagine that there are ways in which this intervention may not do as much good as we would think. And so we're trying to gather what data that is available and look through the research to think critically about how confident we are that this is doing good. I think everybody involved expects that this is a good thing and that we will start recommending donations in this area, but we don't know for sure. Going back to the AI question, I have to talk about that. Okay. Uh, my intuition generally runs along how much of a threat would an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, really pose to humanity? I mean, won't an AGI, for example, hit Polanyi's paradox in court at some point? And there's some things that machines cannot do. And do we have fear an AGI? <laughs> yeah. I think of myself as someone who is not very imaginative. My career has been about looking at other people's research to decide whether I believe it, not doing my own new research. So maybe my imagination is failing me. I find it hard to imagine the kinds of scenarios where AI takes over the world. But I mean that literally. I find it hard to imagine. I'm not sure that my imagination is up to the job. I do, too. I get, um, I get, I get that feeling. Sorry, I get that feeling okay. when I read Bostrom or Pansing or Eliezer, and I just try to think about what they think about, and I can't, I really can't visualize it. I can't yeah. relate. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm right about this. This is just my imagination and my intuition. Where it leads me is to the sense that whatever does happen with artificial intelligence will not be a clean story any more than industrialization is a clean story in world history. Industrialization meant lots of things to lots of different people, had lots of impacts, occurred at different times in different places. I feel like AI will be like that, and that there is lots of potential for harm. Whether it will be as clean as a story of AI one day waking up and taking over the world, I don't know. Um, but especially because so much of the world now runs in the virtual realm on the internet, you know, I can't imagine some kind of agent running out of control on the Internet and being very hard for humans to control. And that doesn't mean it will be smarter than us in every respect, any more than current viruses are smarter than us in every respect. But it could be smarter than us in certain ways that make it dangerous in new ways, make it destructive in new ways and harder for us to control. You know, it may not understand love or happiness or it may not be good at charming you, but it may still be able to trash your computer. 
So David, your, your background is in mathematics. How much leverage would you say that gave you in some of the things you later decided to do? And I'm saying that in the light of today where you don't hear people say too often that, oh, if you want to do X and Y in life, study math. Everybody's about learning to code, cloud computing, and all the really new high-paying skills. So how much would you see your background in math? It may not be intended, but how much has it helped you? And what advice would you give to a young person that may look at what you're doing and say, oh yeah, I like that and I want to do that. I want to do something impactful. I want to make a difference, you know. So what advice would you give? Yeah, great questions. Uh, as you suggested, I did study math without a long-term plan for how it would be useful for me. It was just the thing that I enjoyed the most and got the best grades in. But I think it has served me well for a number of reasons. One is that it means there's almost no subject, no field that I can't come up to speed on, or at least learn something about with effort. It's not like reading equations for me is like reading the newspaper for anybody. It's still hard, but I was able to go into economics. I could understand geomagnetic storms. It's another topic we could talk about. Lots of topics without any formal training because there was no technical barrier to my understanding. It just took work. I think mathematics also taught me certain habits of reasoning that have been useful. So this is probably both math and programming because I've started programming at a young age. I've learned that whatever I come to a conclusion, there's probably an error, just as there are almost always bugs in code. And so I then need to turn around and attack my reasoning and look for the weaknesses, and then look for the deeper insight that comes out of finding the places where I was overly simplistic in my reasoning. So it's led to, I think, to a certain kind of care in my work. A third way it's helped me is I've always known that I could get a reasonably well-paying job, both because of math skills and coding skills. And having that knowledge in turn makes it easier for you to take risks. So if you say, you know, I really want to go work on some kind of public policy issue or be an intern at an organization that I think is doing good work, even though they don't pay me, it's easier to take that kind of plunge if you know that you can back out at some point and get a good paying job. Whereas if you study art history, it's much harder to take that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. So I do encourage young people to lean in the direction of technical studies to the extent that it fits who they are, you know. If you're born to be an art historian, then you should just be an art historian. You know, at least you should try. But if you can push yourself to learn a little bit more about coding, a little bit more about physics and math, that will give you more agency in life, I think, in, in the modern world. And that in turn allows you to take more risks so that you can find the interesting path that mixes your skills with your sense of mission. Mm -hmm. And speaking of skills, I have to say for a mathematician, you write incredibly well. I read both of your books and they were clear, they were concise, they were well-reasoned, the arguments spoke to me, and it's almost a rare skill, especially for someone with a technical background. I mean, I read academic papers all the time and they are actually quite boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have to ask you, how did you learn to write so well? Is yeah. it from reading Shakespeare or, <laughs> or, or what? Um, from age 8 to age 14, I was in a very unusual progressive school. 
I don't know if they have them. And they're actually kind of uncommon even in the States. I don't know if you could find them in Nigeria. I had the same teacher for six years. We were never graded. And it was a mixed age class, a very open, flexible place. But the teacher did have us write every week and then listen to each other's writing and comment on it. So I think becoming a good writer, a lot of it is practice and reading. You know, there's something in your brain, maybe especially when you're young, that's generating those word sequences unconsciously. And it must somehow be a synthesis of everybody you've ever listened to and everybody you've read, at least in those formative years in your teenage years. But part of it is also what I described before when I was talking about how the mathematics study made me teach. I think of writing as an iterative process. There's a point where I realized that it was effective to start each paragraph with a topic statement and then provide details. And there was a point where I realized that cutting words made prose more effective. And then I got so enthusiastic about cutting words that I discovered I had taken it too far. So then I realized I had to reread everything I wrote to feel, listen to whether it felt natural. So it's been an iterative process there, too. You have to practice, but then also listen carefully to your own words by reading them aloud or just reading them. But then also bring that self-skepticism, which can drive self-improvement. Finally, what's the one idea that you are excited about and you would like to see spread everywhere? Like it may be something you're working on, maybe from someone else, it may be something you read and fascinates you. So what is that one idea you like to see spread everywhere and lots of people adopt? Well, the thing that comes to mind, it's not quite what you're asking about, but maybe I'll say it anyway. I have been amazed in the last few weeks at how much innovation there is in the world of computer programming and how much of it is free. You know, people around the world are learning Python and programming in Python. All sorts of packages are written in Python that let you do things very quickly. There's a new programming language that's coming on strong that's called Julia, which has the flexibility of Python, but has the speed of faster languages like C and Fortran. And what has amazed me is how much of this effort is relatively decentralized. There are no dictators controlling most of it and how it is all free. It would be as if I invented a hammer and suddenly millions of people around the world not only could go buy a hammer, but already had one in their hands for free. And it's really quite an extraordinary event, I think, in human history. I don't know how much impact it has, but to have these voluntary global communities collaborating on building things together that are then instantly free to everybody everywhere, I find quite extraordinary. Thank you so much, David. It's been amazing talking to you. It's been a pleasure for me. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com. 